This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and in this episode of Rear Vision, we'll hear about the life and times of Xi Jinping, the man about to take on a third term as China's leader. China has set a date for the twice-a-decade event where President Xi Jinping is expected to be anointed for an historic third term. State media last week announced the meeting of party leaders will start on October the 16th and is expected to last about a week. That event is the National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. It will be held in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. It's the gathering where top-level leadership changes become public and this time we might have been expecting the announcement of a new leader for China. But thanks to a change in the rule that restricted the presidency to two five-year terms, it's expected that the man who's led the party and China as president for the last decade, Xi Jinping, will be reappointed. So what's going to happen this week? National party congresses are held once every five years. At least they have been since 1977, the post-Mao era. I'm Shannon Tiezzi. I am the editor-in-chief at The Diplomat magazine, which is an online publication focused on Asia-Pacific affairs. And my own personal research interests uh, focus on China, Chinese politics, and foreign policy. It's a gathering of around 2,300 delegates of the Communist Party that have been elected by provincial party committees. So as the name would suggest, this is the big national level shindig that builds off of provincial communist party meetings. The main thing that the party congress does that get people so excited about it is it elects the leadership of the Chinese communist party for the next five years. So the National Congress, so again, those 2,300 delegates are going to elect what's called the Central Committee. This is about 200 members with about another 200 members that are alternate members. And then the Central Committee members will vote on who's in the Politburo, which is the next level up the party hierarchy. That's 25 members currently. And also the Politburo Standing Committee, which is the top echelon of political power in China. Seven members at the moment, although it has fluctuated a bit in the past. And they will also select the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, who is China's top leader, Xi Jinping. Now, in practice, when we say that they're electing these leaders, the decisions are all made in advance through the nomination process. You cannot simply decide to run for the position of Chinese Communist Party general secretary or a spot on the Politburo Standing Committee. You have to be nominated by a group of China's top leaders, including elder retired leaders. So in essence, the practice of who gets nominated is who determines who these leaders are and the rest of us just don't know it until the official voting results are registered. It's all the product of backroom negotiations and dealings at the highest level that we can only speculate about. But just to recap a little bit, we are talking about, you know, quote unquote elections involving under 3000 Chinese Communist Party members, which is a tiny, tiny fraction of the 96 million CCP members in China and an even tinier fraction of the 1.4 billion people in China. And in these elections, there's usually only one candidate for each spot. 
Jinping's father played a key role in the very survival of the Chinese Communist Party, providing sanctuary during what's known as the Long March, the Red Army's desperate military retreat in the mid-1930s. After the creation of the People's Republic of China in 1949, although Xi's father would hold high office, he would also be purged by Mao in the early 1960s. His father was a very prominent figure, you know, goes back to the Long March, to this dramatic moment where the communist movement is almost destroyed as it's fleeing the forces of the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. I'm John Delury, professor of Chinese studies at Yonsei University and author of a brand new book, Agents of Subversion, The Fate of John T. Downey and the CIA's Covert War in China. Mao Zedong emerges as the leader of this ragtag group. They go from close to 100,000 to, by the end, less than 10,000. So it's really a trial by fire as they're just wandering around the country trying to figure out what to do and find sanctuary. And Xi's father is important in that story because actually this long march ends up in a sort of desolate area of, of North China where they stumble into another communist group you know, a sort of separate, they were called Soviets. So there's another Soviet set up in this area of Shanxi province that they literally just chance upon. And that Soviet was the base of Xi's father. Xi's father was actually in some kind of incarceration detention because he had recently fallen on the wrong end of a power struggle within that Soviet. The internal rivalries and, and purges and infighting in the history of this party is really extraordinary. So Mao saved Xi because when Mao showed up, he said, well, let's, we should let those guys out and kind of reverse the, the power. And so that forged a sort of bond. And that certainly puts the Xi family there, you know, at kind of one of the founding moments of the party. And he had a, a very successful career as a loyal party member and a, a capable and competent one. And then Actually, a little before the Cultural Revolution in 1962, the father was a victim of another purge, this time essentially, if not at Mao's bidding, then certainly with Mao's uh, approval. And that really sent the Xi family, you know, kind of on this spiral that many elite party families experienced during the 1960s and 70s. I mean, it's actually not uncommon. Xi Jinping and the other sons of the communist elite, known as princelings, had led a privileged life. Mao's Cultural Revolution, a disastrous social and political movement, would shortly sweep away everything Xi's family had ever known. He still stayed in Beijing, but he went to an ordinary school. My name is Victor Xi. I'm the Holmi Lum Chair Associate Professor at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. His father was out in the countryside doing hard labor. They could still stay in Beijing. So he attended an ordinary school, not a very good one for the next few years, until the beginning of the Cultural Revolution in 1966, when the fortune of his family suffered another tremendous blow because everyone in that faction, they were still on the bad side. And so the Red Guards, who had formed by then to do Mao's bidding, they really went after all those families. And so Xi Jinping's family came under enormous pressure. His half-sister, which is his sister through his father's first marriage, actually committed suicide. 
And to him personally, he couldn't even stay in Beijing anymore after a year or so after the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. And like millions of young Chinese of that generation, they had to be sent down to the countryside. And, you know, you can hear recordings of him recounting that, you know, very painful history of his life. And he admitted publicly that he couldn't take it at first. You know, he was sent to the countryside. It was the hard labor, the bad food. He was used to eating a lot of pork, you know, because even though most Chinese at that time didn't eat a lot of meat, but as the son of a senior level official, he had access to pork and meat. In the countryside in northwestern China, a very poor area of China, there was no meat. You just ate the raw grain, a rough grain, which these days, of course, that's a luxury, you know, brown rice and, and things like that. But back then, that, that was considered, you know, a very much a hardship. And he actually ran away from the countryside. He ran back to Beijing, begged his family to take him back, begged the authorities to allow him to stay in the city. But the authority says, no, you know, you have to go back the countryside. So he went back. But then he underwent this transformation. And so this is part of the myth making of Xi Jinping. He went, underwent this transformation. He adapted to the way of the countryside. He learned how to live in the countryside from the farmers in the area. And he learned to love to be one of them, one of the farmers in northwestern China. And they in turn reciprocated and treated him like one of them. And of course, eventually making him into a, a leader of the local brigade. So began Xi's slow rise through the party. Unlike other princelings, other children of senior level officials, he didn't stay in Beijing. So you know, all the princelings that were trying to get high level positions in Beijing, actually most of those people ended up dropping out of government because there was too much resistance against them. In contrast, Xi Jinping left Beijing, first went to a county-level government, which is pretty low-level, in Hebei province, and then transitioning to Fujian province as a vice mayor of a small city. And that ended up really benefiting him because there was no resistance to his promotion. The local officials saw him as a useful connection to Beijing, through which they can lobby for more resources, more money from the central government. And so his career, even though he wasn't promoted in a very rapid fashion, he rose in rank gradually so that by the early 2000s, he was a pretty senior level official, you know, at the provincial level. And he took on these very important positions. So when it came time to choose a successor to Hu Jintao, who was the previous president of China, so this would have been around 2006, 2007, the princelings, the children of the first generation revolutionaries, they all rallied around Xi Jinping, you know, because he was seen as a very low-key, very humble figure who's not threatening to other people, who was very patient, who was willing to live among the people, work from a very low level of government gradually to higher level positions. Among the princelings, among some subset of the Chinese government, he was popular. And so they selected him to be the next leader of China. Xi Jinping has been raised to believe he is the true inheritor of the Chinese Communist Party. 
I'm Su Lin Wong, China correspondent at The Economist and host of an eight-episode series on Xi Jinping called The Prince. He tells these stories in interviews that he's done with Chinese media about how when he was a kid, his dad would line up him and his siblings and lecture them about how Xi Zhongshun and Xi Jinping's mom were revolutionaries and how Xi Jinping and his brothers and sisters would also be revolutionaries and they would continue fighting for the Communist Party in whatever form. It's it's really helpful when thinking about Xi Jinping to remember that he genuinely believes that the Communist Party is his party. He's inherited it from his forefathers and he is going to do whatever he can to ensure it remains in power. And so I think that sort of drive and ambition also pushed him to where he is. Given his traumatic childhood and given the fact that millions of Chinese of his generation were sent to the countryside, they lived in abject poverty, they lived in horrific conditions, you know, some were physically and sexually abused, others died from the sort of trauma of that whole experience unleashed by the then leader of China, Mao Zedong. Many Chinese, once that horrible period in Chinese history was over, decided to leave China completely. They they wanted nothing to do with China. Then there was a second group, particularly people sort of in the elite, the princelings, who decided that you know, they wanted to sort of embrace a more Western lifestyle. They maybe wanted to get into business. They they didn't want to have anything to do with the party either. But there was a third category, and that was the category Xi Jinping fell into. And they were the people who decided to double down on the party, who decided to sort of become, so to speak, redder than red. And what they thought was that the party had lost control during the Cultural Revolution, and they wanted to make sure that they worked towards a party that was very firmly in control of China. Our people love life and yearn for better education, stable jobs, more satisfactory income, greater social security, improved medical and health care, more comfortable living conditions, and a more beautiful environment. We want our children to grow up well and have better jobs and more fulfilling lives. The people's desire for a better life is what we shall fight for. Xi Jinping speaking as the newly minted General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party in 2012. What's happened under Xi's leadership? Some things are obvious to outside observers. We've seen the Belt and Road Initiative, an infrastructure development scheme that's left many poorer countries in debt to China. Democracy has been crushed in Hong Kong, and China has continued to flex its military muscle in relation to Taiwan and the South China Sea. But what's happened inside China, and to the hopes she expressed for his people in that speech? This is a very interesting question, because looking back, there was a lot of hope, particularly from Western observers, that he would be a reformist leader. His legacy of his father, who was a reformist, but also she talked in plain language rather than CCP jargon in his first speech as leader. And in his first year or so of leading the party, there was a lot of talk about reform, about marketization. So Early perceptions from outside China was that this was a reformist, someone who was going to move China toward a more open 
economy and potentially society. It turned out to be exactly the opposite. It soon became pretty clear that what she meant by reform was strengthening party control over pretty much every facet of life and also strengthening the ideological meaning of being a CCP member. It had kind of lost that function. People just saw it as a, a box to check as they're trying to advance their careers. But she has really emphasized ideological education. You know, party members need to be studying Marxism. Party members need to be studying Xi Jinping thought. He's really drummed home, you know, loyalty to the party and loyalty to Xi Jinping himself as a prerequisite for every single CCP member, while also expanding the reach of the CCP, these party cells that I discussed earlier in, you know, schools, businesses, they've always existed, but they didn't really do all that much in some cases. It was kind of left up to choice. And now it's not a choice anymore. You might have a party cell overseeing who gets appointed to the board of a private company. Um, it's that level of control. And obviously, with the pandemic, if you know anything about the zero COVID policies that China has enacted, you can really see the level of control over daily life that the CCP is exerting in China. So that, I would say, has been Xi's biggest legacy, is making the party more ideological, returning it to kind of its Marxist roots, and also expanding its control in a way that we haven't really seen in the 21st century. Just before Xi Jinping came into power in the early 2010s, what we saw in China was really this push to separate the Chinese Communist Party from the Chinese state. And so you have these two tracks. You have the government, but you also have the party. And they were increasingly diverging. What has changed under Xi Jinping is that now the Communist Party is everything and the government is very much subservient to the party. And you know, Xi Jinping has this famous slogan where he says, North, South, East, West, the Communist Party leads everything. So that has been a distinct shift under Xi Jinping. And he's really consolidated his control over the Chinese Communist Party, which has nearly 100 million members. So many more people than the population of Germany. And through the Communist Party, he's been able to seize control of the country. And what that means is if you're an ordinary Chinese person, you're seeing the Communist Party a lot more just in your day-to-day -day life. So, for example, when your kid goes to school in kindergarten, they're now studying Xi Jinping thought in their textbooks in a way that they didn't, you know, 10, 20 years ago if you were in kindergarten. You didn't study the thought of the then Chinese leader. So that's one way the Communist Party is becoming a lot more involved in ordinary people's lives. Another way we're seeing it is just in the information people in China are consuming. So before Xi Jinping came into power, that was sort of considered the golden age of journalism. And there was there were a lot of very, very talented Chinese journalists I, I know who were, you know, reasonably free. They weren't completely free, but they were able to report much more freely on what they were seeing in China. Whereas now, most of those people do not work as journalists anymore. And when you turn on the news, when you scroll through your social media feeds in China, the information that you are consuming is a lot more controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. And there's far less journalism that is sort of being done in a in a slightly more organic grassroots way another really meaningful change is that 
we're seeing the Communist Party become a lot more involved in private companies. Tech companies you might have heard of, like Alibaba, increasingly have a presence from the Chinese Communist Party in them. So there's all kinds of ways that the Communist Party has increased its, its reach and its impact. Given this, is it possible to see how popular she is in China? That question is really impossible to answer because political comments in China are so tightly censored. You know, it could be that every person in China genuinely loves him, or it could be that every person in China genuinely hates him. And from the perspective of an outsider trying to figure that out, it would look the same. Because negative comments are censored or not even being voiced because people are afraid of the consequences. So you'll read articles that say, you know, there's opposition to him within the party. I think that's likely. But that doesn't mean that he's about to be, you know, overthrown in a coup. It just means as had there have always been, there are different factions jockeying for influence within the CCP. In terms of what the common person in China thinks, anecdotally, again, because we don't have a comprehensive like public opinion survey to go on, I think most Chinese people have soured on Xi a little bit. The constitutional amendment in 2018 was a huge deal in that regard. That's when Xi Jinping maneuvered to remove term limits on the presidency, which again is separate from the CCP position that he holds, which used to limit the president to two five-year terms. And a lot of people read that as an early cue that he was going to stay on in all of his positions for another five years. And that struck a lot of ordinary Chinese the wrong way. They'd gotten used to these institutionalized once a decade leadership transfers. And there's a lot of worry about what it might mean if China returns to sort of dictator for life, one man rule, because China went through a lot of hard times the last time that there was a cult of personality under Mao Zedong. And certainly in the last few years, zero COVID has really taken a toll. I think a lot of Chinese people were very proud of their country's performance early in the pandemic. They looked at what was happening in the United States and in many countries in Europe and India, you know, the massive death tolls. And they said, you know, China has done a good job and they were proud of their country. But now you have vaccines. They're seeing all these other countries open up. And a lot of people are saying, you know, these measures, the cure might be worse than the disease at this point. If you look at the survey data, so at the 21st Century China Center, we do do this kind of three times a year or so, surveys of at least internet users in China. He's very popular. The central government enjoys pretty high support through the kind of the first two months of this year. I think that's the latest round that we have. But of course, he doesn't need to be that popular because China is an authoritarian government. No leader of note is directly elected by the people. And so even if he didn't have approval rating of 80 percent, 70, 80 percent, which is what we find, it's not a problem for him. Of course, I think if he's very unpopular, there would be some repercussions just because people would comply with government decrees less. And then what we've seen more recently is just young people, at least in China, they, they want to leave the country because they find it too oppressive to live in the zero COVID regime. 
And also there aren't enough economic opportunities in China for young people. So people always, you know, vote with their feet, which of course is not good for China's interests in the medium term. But it's not a threat to regime stability, right? Because people who want to leave, they just leave and that's that. There's no doubt that Xi will be re-elected as party leader and he'll be confirmed as China's president probably in March next year. Given there'll be few surprises this week, what should we look out for in this gathering of the Chinese Communist Party? Most of what happens will be predictable to people in the inner circle. <laughs> you know, for those of us outside of the party, of course, all of this will be new. To us, it's going to be substantively very important. It's not theater. But of course, most of the major decisions will have been made by the beginning of the party congress on October 16th. Occasionally, you will still have some debates on top-level personnel appointments right up to the beginning of the party congress or even during the first stage of the party congress. Although for this congress, we really don't expect that to happen just because Xi Jinping is very dominant within the party. His followers now occupy the vast majority of the seats in the Politburo and also in the senior ranks of the Chinese military. These two facts give him a lot of power. And so I, I don't think there's going to be too much backroom, back and forth in debates. One thing we could see is that the name of this position at the top of the party could change from a sort of nondescript, almost bureaucratic general secretary, which doesn't have a lot of poesis to it in the Chinese or in the English, to an older term, which has a lot of linguistic power to it, resonance to it, a Zhushi of chairman. You know, we would translate that as chairman of the party. And that would be significant, I think, for domestically for Chinese people, because that means Xi Jinping is called Xi Zhushi, like Chairman Xi, in the way that you very naturally call Mao Zedong, Mao Zhushi, Chairman Mao. And so that's one thing to look for. Now, as with all this stuff, it's complicated because he's actually already Xi Zhushi. The, the title for the presidency is Chairman of the Nation. So this gets hard to follow if, if you're, you're not a Chinese language speaker or learner. But that is something sort of interesting to have on one's radar is the name of the role that will have importance to, to the Chinese public. The other one being that, you know, we're all looking for is the issue of succession. Like is a successor clarified? Like is there someone who's a new name you have to remember? because this is the guy. Just like in 2007, we knew Xi Jinping was the guy. Here in 2022, are we going to learn, okay, this is the next guy who will be a guy? That'll be important. If we don't, you know, let's say if it's Chairman Xi, and it's really unclear who in this new group is the heir apparent, like there's no obvious heir apparent, then I'll be very interested to watch what happens, you know, in the wake of this. And to me, I think the question will be, is, is Xi Jinping really that popular? I think he's broadly popular. I think he's gotten less so because of the, the COVID closed down, dragging on. I don't think that's hugely popular with people. So I think his popularity is, is going down a bit, but I still think he's fundamentally popular and the party wants him and that's why he's staying, in my view. But 
if this is really all about Xi and there's no clear successor and he's elevated, you know, in all these other ways, I think we're going to be in the early stages of moving into seeing some of the grumbling. Professor John Delury. Thanks to him and my other guests, Professor Victor Shi, Shannon Tiesi, and Sulin Wong. You'll find their details on the Rear Vision website. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Hamish Camilleri for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.